Welcome back to the Ben and Berg's show, uh, where we speak about sport, investing, crypto, and personal growth. And we've got a really special guest with us today, Chris Judd. Thanks for joining us, mate. Ben, good to be here, Berg's. Very nice to uh, very nice to meet. Thanks for having me on the show. Nice to meet you. It's uh, we so Chris and I we, we spoke at Monash University uh, a couple of months ago and had a had a ripper of a time. We did anyway. I'm not sure if the crowd did, but <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, we thought we'd bring him on. And for those that don't know, Chris is a, a very famous AFL player, Hall of Famer, uh, played for Carlton. Uh, West Coast Eagles and now is transitioning into more of an investing role with Chris Judd Invest and Talk Your Book. You're doing a lot of media stuff, mate, but I wanted to maybe throw to you to give a better introduction of yourself, your transition out of footy and, and what you're up to now. Thanks, Ben. Yeah, well, I, I played footy for professionally for 14 years uh, and then after footy, uh, worked as an analyst for a VC fund for about 18 months and I don't like VC investing. It's, it's binary. Uh, the companies to me look overvalued. Um, Australia is a really small addressable market. Uh, and whilst I was doing that, I was investing in equities and, and doing well and really enjoying that and just, you know, wondered why I was spending my whole day looking at, uh, opportunities I don't want to invest in when there was a heap I did want to invest in. And after about 18 months, made the transition to becoming a full-time private investor. And that's been a good journey, uh, about three years ago, hired an analyst and have a, a, a lady working with me doing admin. So we're a really small team. Um, but yeah, I've been enjoying doing that. Really like macroeconomics. Um, and that's sort of the, the framework for how I invest and express that through listed equities, preferably microcap listed equities. But in today's sort of liquidity environment, I find myself investing more in larger cap opportunities until... Um, those liquidity conditions improve. Mm -hmm. And were you investing where you were playing football? I was. So I was like a, what I'd refer to as a stupid investor. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> but I was buying ANZ and BHP. And I say that because there's just no edge in owning that stuff. They're really well researched. Um, you know, I'd read a couple of Warren Buffett books and decided I knew how to invest. Um, <laughs> and then when I was 28, I met a guy from Perth who really taught me how to invest and taught me how to invest in micro caps. Uh, he was chairman of a, of a stockbroking firm over there, highly successful investor. And that really um, changed my perception and probably made me understand um, how to sell stocks. You know, I think property uh, investing is really about buying. Uh, you buy a really good property and you get a good de debt um, deal on it. The urgency to sell um, isn't really there, particularly in the last, you know, 40 odd years. But in equities, particularly in small cap listed equities the skill is in knowing when to sell um that that's what separates good equity investors from poor ones and and you know my mate in the west i'm still really close to today uh really taught me a lot of those skills when i was i was 28. Mm. that's the questions we get yeah, yeah. <laughs> in the group where it's like when do i buy next question when do i sell yeah, and yeah everyone is bad at selling yeah even in crypto i'm dying to know about your time in vc so Ben and I, Ben's been pitching to investors for how many months, mate? Yeah, five, six months. Yeah, yeah. I've jumped on a couple of calls as well. And these guys just look dead, mate. They've got bags <laughs> under their eyes, they're sucking on their vapes, they hate their lives, they're doing their little sums, they're not really listening. How did you find it when you were going through that experience? Look, I was really lucky to have that opportunity and the people I worked with were great. Um, but I just found that I put a huge value on liquidity and I found when I saw the opportunities, uh, they were more expensive and they were illiquid yeah. than liquid listed opportunities, which made no sense to me. Um, every second founder you meet thinks they're the next Zuckerberg. Um, Selling hopes and dreams. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. And, you know, I was at an impact fund as well. And, and 
impact investing is really not my jam either. I think it ignores, it, it really oversimplifies a really complex world. And, you know, if you speak to most impact investors, and this is broad brushstrokes, they think it'd be a wonderful thing for the oil price to go to 250 bucks because that'd push people to stop using oil and then move to, uh, you know, EVs and, and other other solutions. And if oil was at 250 bucks, you'd have a mass starvation event in Everything third world countries, yeah. you know, and not to mention the, the challenges in first world countries. But, you know, a lot of these impact investors ignore those second order effects and, and oversimplifies a really complex world. So that component really wasn't for me. Um, so it wasn't a great fit, but by the same token, I was, you know, in many ways, not in many ways, I was underqualified for the role. So really grateful to get the opportunity but by the same token was 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 pleased i made the call to, to go and do something which which fit better with with how i view the world absolutely i like what you said about you know being macro and seeing how things actually connect and second and third order effects whereas if you're like we do this we see the world through here this is the future we're going to invest heavily in that you're going to break the world or it's going to be really annoying if you have that brain that can see you know outside of that bubble and you just wonder how much of it is about trying to help the world and how much of it is about rich people in rich countries trying to make give themselves meaning in, in, in how they're living their lives. And I think as we see cost of living pressures increase, I think, you know, people are going to have to become more aware of, of what some of these decisions mean for those less fortunate, particularly in those third world countries like we're seeing in Sri Lanka and a whole host of other countries at the minute. Isn't that crazy? It's like Sri Lanka, they just turn the petrol off. It's like you can't drive your car. They've just stopped the entire country. Yeah, it's crazy, and and it, like interest rates, inflation. You know, Turkey's up like eighty percent. Africa forty percent. It's wild. That's right. Wild. That's right. So the, the you know the the effects are are real. Yeah. Um, it's fascinating. How did what would you say, Chris? Like you're probably on the upper echelon of like knowledge of investing coming from the sports background. You know, sports players. Um, you know, look at NBA. Like are paid really, really well, and a lot of these guys are taking their on-court or on-field brand and then turn them into media brands and investing in VC funds. Like you look at LeBron James or Serena Williams. What do you think the, uh, I guess, the average for Australian sports players across AFL, you know, NBL are like? Are these, uh, is, there a, is there a shift for those people to start to invest personally? They're using their capital well. Do they really know what they're doing? Do they get the help that they need to invest properly? Or uh, I would say no uh, in broad brushstrokes, but there's always, um, you know, it's always challenging when you're talking about 900 people as if they're one. So there's always a, a mix of uh, personalities and skill levels at anything. But I think one of the challenges is, um, you know, if you look at the incentive structure for player managers and clubs to offer investment advice, it's not really there. So if a player manager offers investment advice and it works out, the player will generally think, I've done well, I've, I've invested well. If it works out badly, he'll go, this manager's no good. He's just cost me this. I'm finding a new manager. And the club's a bit the same. Um, so it, it's trying to find that balancing act where a trusted third party can give that advice who's qualified to do so. is probably a growth area that I reckon clubs can explore. But the AFL also has really strict restrictions and gets nervous that that investment advice will end up being a competitive advantage and lead into some sort of salary cap breach. So there's all sorts of minefields there. Um, but, you know, your footy players, you've got access to disposable income, uh, huge risk tolerance. You know, you're playing a contact sport. Uh, you also told you're brilliant, which is a disaster as a 20-year-old. You know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? If a footy player has an opinion on anything, yeah. a high profile, you know, 
Dustin Martin came out with an opinion on anything, be it science-related or otherwise, it would be front-page news, People you know, know, which is ridiculous. Um, and that's not anything to do with Dusty. That's just football players, myself included. It's influence, right? Influence. That's yeah. right. So, yeah. but, but what that trains you up is to – it's easy to get lulled into thinking you know more about the world than you do, of which I was guilty of in that period of my life as well. So there's a whole heap of things going against footy players being good investors. Um, and yeah, it's uh, and there's a heap of people <laughs> trying to trying to fleece them. So um, there's some horror stories out there. A lot of them are pretty long residential property, which um, you know is certainly better than being long unlisted private businesses. Um, but yeah, I think it's probably a, a bit of a growth area there. And how did you think about coming out of the end of your career into the next phase? You know, you're doing a lot of media stuff. You're doing some TV shows. You've got your own podcasts. What was the point for you that you decided to go down that path? Was it a was it iterative over a, a long period of time? How did you think about that? Yeah, it was it was a challenge. Like I knew my career was coming to an end, but it was still pretty abrupt when it happened. And I wanted to be an entrepreneur because the people I admired most in the business world started their own businesses, and that's what I wanted to do. Uh, and then I did a personality test when I was about 32 or 33 that was really illuminating and really changed uh, my path. Um, I mean, long story short, it, it, it just sort of showed I was a real outlier personality-wise, which I had no idea of. And when I tried to discredit the test to my wife, she <laughs> explained that, no, that's what, that's what you are. That's what <laughs> just holds up the mirror here. Yeah, yeah. And, so that was a, that was, and then, you know, I thought through it and thought, no, that's... That's right. And that explained a lot of things. It was a shame it took me so long to do the test, but just, um, you know, highly disagreeable, like right off the spectrum for disagreeability, sort of, I think, bottom 3%. Uh, manners was bottom 5%. Manners didn't mean saying please and thank you. I, I forget what it meant. Um, you know, a whole host of other things, but basically, you know, not really suited to managing large groups of people. You know, it might be right for me. I'd be annoying for them. Um <laughs> But suited to investing, you know, I mean, in my job, I meet with CEOs or, or brokers and being disagreeable is a, um, a positive in that because they're all trying to tell you they're the next best thing. And if your natural reaction is to assume they're lying, that that will help you over the long term. So It's a strength and you need to press them. Yeah. That's right. So it gradually, um, you know, I'm wrapped. I didn't start a business, uh, certainly an operating business with a lot of people. Because once you're pot committed to that, you really need to see it through. So that were the real learnings, understanding yourself a bit better and and playing to what your strengths are, not what you'd like your strengths to be. And I see so many people doing things that they're not suited to just because they think that's what they should be doing. Um, so that was a that was a really good learning. And it, I felt I just got it in the nick of time and, and I've ended up doing something that I'm really both passionate about but but suited to doing as well. Fantastic. So that self-awareness piece, I think it's really important. You know, I, I, I get caught in that trap, you know, trying to do something that you think you want to do because other people are doing it or you want to be that person when you really don't give a shit about doing that thing. <laughs> you do this every week on the pod. So every week you have an accountability challenge, right? And mine will be like, you know, there's something that's bothering me that I have to do that week. And if we don't do it, we have to put $500 towards a Bedenberg's meetup, like a bar tab, right? Smash mine every single week, whether it's like, you know, sealing and painting a bathroom, selling my arcade machines that have been sitting there for 10 years that I really don't want to sell because all these dickheads will come to my house and it's just so annoying. Ben is always the person that he thinks he should be. He's like, read a book or exercise here or do this. And he's like, I'm none of those fucking things. I'm just not going to do it. I'm not going to build that habit. 
Just like doing business. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember yours? You did that personality test. Yeah, I can't. Uh, probably a separate test to yours, Chris. But um, yeah, mine was around winning, uh, winning with others. Basically, like I love the idea of like winning collectively and helping others win. Uh, was really one of my strengths. Like bulldozing down anything to make whatever possible, but with others. Uh, and I think that's why I love business. And I love probably the, the opposite of you, Chris. I love you know team like bigger teams and managing and like sort of shipping everyone off, but. Um, it's fascinating when you get that real self-awareness you look in the mirror like oh shit oh, yeah. Yeah. but also that hubris as well like you're saying when you're an AFL player you're at the top of your game you're in your 20s you you think you can do anything right and you're told you can do anything and I saw that a lot uh, when I was working in health especially with uh, a lot of the doctors the surgeons where they're just in their domain they are just gods mm. and they think that they can just pick that up and put it in yeah. another domain and you just see them go right downhill yeah I like the um, yeah transition for footy players that's really interesting like I saw when I was doing my MBA out at UWA, um, Pav was there, Darren Glass, Nat Fife. It's good to see, like, while I think Nat was still, yeah, he's still, he's still playing, just on the kind of tail end. And then at least that gives him, like, a, a baseline to kind of go to the next thing. I'm happy you found your thing, like, you know, pretty much straight away, man. The thing that you well, like. Well, no, that took it took a while. Um, when did you finish footy? So you started, when did you start your bit? When I did you finish footy? When did you start years. Chris Judd Invest? Two years. Yeah. Oh, Chris Judd Invest was a bit longer. But two years to become a private investor, then probably another two years for Chris Judd Invest. Um, so it's been iterative, but yeah, I think it's it's going in a pretty good direction now. And is is the media brand more for deal flow for you? Yeah, basically. Yeah. Um, yeah, just filling out the network. And by rights, when I started, I should have been working for a fund manager, but I didn't want to. Um, but there would have been some utility in learning those lessons of someone with grey hair, um, or as much here as mine. Um, <laughs> and so it really filled that role. You get access to so many different investors, but also there are different investment styles. Um, there's not one right way to invest. And, you know, to speak to growth managers, value managers, all sorts of different managers, get some learnings from their framework. And then, you know, if I see a fund manager selling stock, it's much easier to ring them up and say, you know, I might want to buy that stock. I'm thinking, what have you seen? Why are you selling it? It just fills out those networks, which other fund managers get. Um, so that was that was the original, learn, uh, you know, motivation to do it. It's been brilliant for that. I'm I'm really glad I've done it, and um, you know, it's 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 still growing and and really enjoying it. Do you have plans to create a fund uh, outside of just manage your own capital? Yeah, so I'm doing that now. So that's been a big step. Because um, I think last time we spoke, you were sort of on the you know, yeah. Yeah, I was. I was. Um, I mean, there's huge advantages to being private. You can be really small, get in and out of positions quicker. You can take on more risk than uh, other people. Um, but I just felt I was slowly starting to be like a guy surfing in Torquay, like looking around at Winky Pop as a <laughs> surf competition yeah. and telling people, you know, come in and I go, oh, I could do that if I wanted to. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, you'd see those people when you're playing professional sport, like – you either can do it or you can't. And um, yeah, look, I think I'm ready. My young, it'll also help with my analyst and, and the people in my team, giving them the chance to be a part of something bigger. Um, and I've, you know, if I would reflect on the last seven or eight years, a lot of the joy I've got from investing has been managing my folks' superannuation and these sorts of things. And that idea of being able to, to, um, to share the wins while still, not running an operating business with a hundred employees, still being able to live a life where you're 
focused on ideas rather than rather than people necessarily. Um, it appeals. So yeah, so March March is the launch day um, if all goes to plan. So heap of compliance stuff going through now, getting licensed and everything else, which is um, as boring as it sounds. But I'm, I feel good about it. So excited to launch into that. Hopefully next um, next year. Do you think that comes out of a inner uh, competitive within yourself to to want that next challenge, to do that next thing, to to, to try something you haven't done and, and, and win at it? Yeah, I think I was going to struggle to feel like I was really reaching my potential yeah. without um, this challenge. Um, and to see, you know, it's one thing to manage the psychology of your own money and the ups and downs, but but to be able to do that with other people's capital is a, a challenge that I want to take. Um, so it's going to be, yeah, look, I think it'll be a good experience, but we'll see. It's going to be lumpy fun, macros lumpy. Uh, it'll be different to uh, a lot of the funds out there. Um, so it won't be suited to everyone. But, um, you know, as long as I get the right people in and, and people understand what the journey looks like, and I've got records from 14 to be able to show that, my personal account. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Exciting. How, do you know how big that's going to be in terms of fund size or what are you aiming it'll for? It'll be small. I think, yeah. it'll be, I think it'll start, you know, I think it'll start somewhere around 20 million, hopefully, you know, I've got some family officers that are interested, um, so we'll just we'll just see. It's um, a lot can happen in markets between now and March. It's it's weird because I I catch myself half barracking for markets to crunch yeah. <laughs> before March because you sort of get that uptick when you start at the bottom. But I'm still invested in markets, so I'm sort of I, I you cop it either way, mate. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah I, I'll try and be positive either way. But um, yeah, that's sort of that's sort of the hope. But we'll start where we're at. Yeah. Um, if it's smaller than that, it's smaller than that. If it's bigger, it's bigger. But, um, you know, these sort of games, they're infinite games. They go for a long time. Um, it's That's not it. so much about where we start, but but where we end up. Yeah. You win the game by surviving. Yeah. 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 Um, so you've been investing for a while. And, mate, what what are some of those investing lessons where you've gone in, you're, you're kind of investing, and all of a sudden just whack, and you're like, oh, shit. That's how that works. Have you ever had any of those kind of events going in? Yeah. Um. Or any, okay, let's, let's reframe <laughs> that. Anything um, that you think the people listening uh, should know about markets or could help them? Like lessons that you've learned along the way that were like, oh, this would have been helpful at the start. Well, I think it, you need to invest uh, in a way that suits your personality. I think that's really important. Um, I mean, for me, the thing I really zero in is in which opportunities mean revert and which ones don't. And the vast majority of things I'm in, they're going to mean revert over time. Um, you know, hand on my heart, confidently saying nothing in my portfolio is the next Amazon, yeah. um, which means if it has a good run and you can't see what the next milestones are coming up that'll get it re-rated, is it's time to sell. So uh, I'm not a collector of positions. Um, I love macro yeah you know yeah. i can still remember the first macro podcast i listened to and it was a life-changing moment um and that's how i invest i i know i can put up with more pain than the average investor yeah uh both through personality and the way i'm currently set up so i embrace that and look for those volatile volatile opportunities yeah um and i think the other thing people you know people want to hear other people agree with them on their investment decisions. 100%, yeah. And if everyone agrees with you, it's already in the price. Yeah. You know, and I, that may make you rest easier. That's the last thing you want to hear as an investor. Um, you know, I know uh, 
well, I don't know. I assume a lot of people listening to this are Bitcoin yeah, enthusiasts. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if they are and they hear Warren Buffett say that Bitcoin's rat poison squared, yeah. they should go, thank God. Because if he's wrong and they're right, that's the next catalyst for growth. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, they're, they're sort of some of the things. Um, there's some a couple that's, of brain dumps. That really rings true for me as well. When the last thing he said, when everyone's on one side of the boat, that's going to tip. And you don't want to be on that side. No, and that like, even if the idea is right, yeah, if it's already in the price, you're not getting the appreciation, yeah, in in, uh, in your capital. So, um, I'm always amazed how you see people on Twitter outraged that someone's got a different view. It's like the market's going to decide anyway, and you—that's the whole point of investing—is for people to agree with you later, yeah, <laughs> not at the time you're in it. Exactly. You want that edge. You want some asymmetric upside. And even just talking about managing your psychology and understanding your personality, we've both been through that quite heavily. Crypto, man, that teaches you quickly, right? And you get in, you want to make money, you start buying things, you start trading, you quickly realize you are not a trader. (laughs) It takes a long time to become one, turn off all your emotions. And even now, um, just knowing what I want to invest in and the way I want to and what I want to manage just helps so much because it just cuts out the noise and just focuses me on these things. It's, yeah, that was the the number one for me. Like what I am not is more important. Like leave 100%. those things alone. And especially in crypto, a lot of people come in trying to be a trader or trying to like quit their job and flip NFTs and they have all these great fancy ideas about what they want to be. And to be going in and you lose money or you get scammed or you, you know, you do something like it's, I think crypto teaches you really quickly. Uh, like what you are and what you aren't. I'm I'm fascinated to know, Chris. How did you get into crypto? Was it was it Bitcoin that got you in? How did how did that come about? You know, and and do you are you actively investing in the space at the moment? Or no, I'm not. So I'm an equities guy, but yeah. you know, being a most interested in macro, you'd be crazy to ignore crypto. So post, um, what was it, April 2020, when all the COVID crazy was happening. Um, I bought some Bitcoin and, and some ETH, um, just cause I saw the increases in money supply and, um, I thought that was going to blow up the world. Uh, and, um, you know, I just view, I really view Bitcoin cause Bitcoin's like a religion. It, it, it's hard. You know, if I get someone asking me what's Bitcoin price going to do to me, Bitcoin is M2, it's money supply. Yeah. And when money supply is going up, in my head, the price of Bitcoin is going to go up. Um, and that's how I view gold as well, for that matter. I, I think that's where the inflation piece pisses people off. And there's a nuance in inflation that they miss. You know, supply-side inflation yeah. isn't going to cause a rise in Bitcoin or gold. And if anything, it's going to do the opposite because it's going to lead to tighter monetary conditions and low M2 growth. And, and that's what we've seen. But when M2 was flying, you know, I think the States was up 40% in 18 months post-COVID, um, those long duration assets were, f- were flying. Um, that's surprising, isn't it? Why people don't connect those together. That's it's right. It's like if there's more cash, people have more cash, they're going to buy more assets, right? Well, it's also what's measuring what's measuring Bitcoin yeah. is USD. Yeah. So as money supply increases in a simple world, that USD is worth less because there's more of it. Um, so the denominator you're going to require more of it to measure the same thing. Um, so that's sort of why I view the world. I, I could see uh, a world where Bitcoin uh, 
really separates itself from the other tokens. Um, you know, I, I think what happened to Russia's reserves post the Ukraine war was really significant. And I don't think there's any risk the US dollar is not going to be reserve currency for a long, long time to come with 87% of the world's transactions. Like, if anything, I think that gets more dominant. But I think US treasuries is a reserve asset post what happened to Russia's reserves uh, post the Ukraine invasion. I think that's, you know, I, I can believe that, that, that perhaps the US Treasury is not going to be a reserve asset of the world for much longer. And you see the central bank buying of gold recently around the world um, is going through the roof. Um, you know, obviously, Swiss national banks experimented with, with the FANG stocks, which maybe wasn't the best <laughs> reserve asset, but um, it was probably looking like a good idea for a while. But, um, you know, and you, you could see a world. I'm not saying this is a base case where, where Bitcoin plays a role as a as a as a reserve asset in that in that space, but it, it's got a fair way to go yet. Um, but I think with, you know, particularly the ETH moving to proof of stake, I think Bitcoin becomes. I, I find Bitcoin mining the most interesting part about it: You're the right. ability to yeah. to stabilize the grid, the ability to uh, build out excess renewable energy, um, and the role Bitcoin mining can play in mopping up that excess electricity and stabilizing the grid and you know thermal coal plants or gas plants aren't designed to be turned up and down exactly and to yeah. put all these intermittent energy sources into a grid and expect them to do so is having uh you know catastrophic effects so uh you could do that through batteries but lithium-ion batteries are really hard to recycle they're expensive uh vanadium redox flow batteries are better for that and last 30 years and you can recycle them and xyz but you know, i think sort of Certainly, Bitcoin mining could play a real role in that as well. Um, but it's not without its challenges as well, you know, going forward. And what will happen with the security when mining rewards aren't enough and X, Y, Z. So um, it, it's interesting where it's a bit of last resort for wasted energy. Or That's you, right. Yeah. And I like that solving the grid problem where turning it up and down, then you've got people with solar panels sending it back to the grid and then you can't match. And yeah, Just that ability to be able to mop up excess energy. And on the three days a year where it's 45 degrees and you know, part of the PPA agreement is you turn off your Bitcoin mining on those days and we use the excess energy for what we need it for. Um, I think that's the cleverest part about it, to be honest. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and just turning it into a store of value, have it for another day and you can spend it or give it back to your shareholders. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And they're doing that in Texas a bit. You know, we're seeing the experiment now in real time. So we'll see. I think it's fascinating how well Bitcoin's held up, you know, amongst all the chaos. I mean, even, you know, we'll talk about FTX soon, but, it's, you know, we sat around the 1800 to 2100 US dollar mark for over 130 days straight. It was less volatile than the NASDAQ and the S&P. And after we had the big... Um, you know, kerfuffle with the in uh, in England in in Europe when they had the um, I think it was a British pound that the president left. They had the you know everyone was thrown in the tower. Had the biggest trading volume of the I think it was the British pound into Bitcoin ever on a single day around all the uh, you know the tax stuff that the the president was sort of saying. So fascinating. I think Bitcoin is still a long way to go, like you said, but is starting to be seen as this hedge against not only just inflation, but it's just a hedge against all the bullshit. To be honest, this asset that you can have that isn't correlated, you know, governments. It isn't owned by anyone. It's not controlled. You're trusting software and code, not people. And you know, for the younger generation, I think we start to get our we get our head around it a little bit better. Um, but I really do see that as the the real, um, I guess, the wave that's going to push Bitcoin back into a bull market moving forward. Yeah, I sort of view like I talk about gold because I I think about that more. But you know, looking at the ten year U.S. Treasury and 
when that the yield's going up, that's bad for gold generally. But if it goes up enough and you get sort of credit risk, all of a sudden it's good for gold. Do you know what I mean? So a dropping US 10-year yield, good for gold. Going up bad, but going up sharply, good for gold. You get sort of two shots at it. And, and you know, Bitcoin's got the potential to have that same... Um, same effect and perhaps we started to see that you know in the us 10 year was starting to push well over four percent um you know bitcoin started to to behave better than it was certainly just in a rising rate environment you wonder if that's what it was starting to mm. starting to say 100 mm. uh are you using uh so one of the real use cases i've seen for us in crypto right now is stable coins uh you know we pay a lot of our employees in stable coins we pay a lot of our employees overseas in, in bitcoin as well are you do you use anything with you know stable coins are you transacting in them at all no nah, i'm not really in that world so i've experimented okay. with lots of things but yeah. no nah, i'm really yeah. uh i'm in the fiat world i have a yeah. small amount of bitcoin and eth and, and i view it more as you know i insure my house yeah uh if my house burns down that insurance is a 200x yeah but i hope i don't 200x on the insurance yeah because you know, i prefer yeah. to have the house that that's yeah. sort of the way yeah. i view the world which yeah. I know it's different and would be different to a lot of people listening to this. Um, but no, don't use them. But certainly can see, particularly if I was in Venezuela or Sri Lanka or, you know, some of those countries, just what a gift, particularly USD stablecoins have been, but also Bitcoin as well. Absolutely. So with your macro outlook, how far do you tend to look out? So are you, are you shorter term or, or what term do you look at? To, to kind of get the picture in your mind to be like, okay, this is where I think things are heading. This is my, you know, investment thesis. This is where I'm going to invest. How, can, how far out do you tend to look? Generally about 24 months, I reckon, yeah. but you can have both. You know, you can have some positions where I'm just prepared to look through a huge amount of pain because I think in 15 years' time that could do something. But generally, um, yeah, I'm probably thinking 12 to 24 months. Yeah. Yeah. Give or t- uh, yeah, it, it's with sorry the, the things I'm investing in, but I mean the overarching framework. I guess you're thinking about as long as you need. I mean, I just think it's all about the current debt position in the world. Yeah, is really the starting point uh, for everything for me, yeah. um, and working back from there. And what are your thoughts around that? How do you how do you see things uh, playing out? So I think there's just as we know a huge amount of debt, both at sovereign level and um, you know, the business level and individual level around the world, and that debt's in USD. So in a simplified term, if US dollar's going up, not much else can because that debt's going up um, in real terms, even if it's staying the same in nominal terms. And the only other time we've really had this level of debt was post-World War II, and we know the playbook to that, which you guys will all know well, is was to introduce yield curve control and, and repay the debt through in, inflating it away. And... There's not really many options when debt gets to this these sorts of levels. You can either you know, stop spending money on entitlements. Uh, you can default. You can create some sort of huge productivity innovation. Um, you know, like free energy for all, just <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. miraculously. Which so those three feel like they're unlikely to happen yeah. to me. Uh, certainly, if politicians want to get elected, or if you don't have a magician, just it's gonna you know, pop up uh, yeah. somewhere. And so the other only real option is to inflate away the debt. And That's it. 
So that seems to be, it'll be the playbook. But if you do that too quickly, you lose the treasury market. And that's really what we've seen. You know, they pump too much stimulus into an economy with tight supply chains. And rather than inflating away the debt at 4 or 5% a year, you know, inflation pushed towards double digits. And that was quick enough for it. Uh, investors around the world to feel that they were a frog in boiling water instead of just a frog in a bath and and the central bankers didn't want them to jump out of the pot. So yeah. they're talking tough and have started to get on top of inflation. But I mean, with this much debt, deflation's horrendous. That's Great Depression. And too much inflation in high interest rates on the debt is no good either because people can't afford to pay them. So they're really trying to walk on a tightrope. Um, and I think the ultimate... Whether the ultimate end game is yield curve control, I think we're going to have negative real yields in interest rates for a long time to come. I just don't see there's another option. Um, so I guess that's really how I'm how I'm positioned. I think most investors in equity land either have to make a call if they believe the period of the last ten or fifteen years where Fang stocks have been dominant is coming back, and this is a buy the dip opportunity, or if we've seen a change of leadership. And low PE stocks and real asset stocks are going to take over that leadership position. I'm in the latter. I think that's what we're going to get. I don't think we're just going back to what's worked the last, I don't know, 10 to 15 years. Um, But I could be wrong, you know, remain to remain flexible in my views, but, but that's how I'm positioned. So there's a lot of commodity stocks in the portfolio currently. Um, There's, you know, we're doing some work on some financials, which we haven't pulled the trigger on yet. Uh, doing some work on some healthcare stocks, which we haven't put the trigger on. And I guess if I'm not great at short-term uh, predictions, you know, we're, we're a bit more longer-term than that. But I, going to my head, I think, you know, we had a great CPI print for investors overnight when inflation looks like it rolled over and owner's equivalent rent was still up. And we know that's a lagging indicator. So it really was a really positive print um yeah you know, inflation's not rolling over because the economy's going well yeah you know that, it's it's a sign it's it's both a sign that the fed can stimulate sooner if they need to if inflation gets crunched right down but it's also a time also a sign that things are softening so i think um yeah i mean one of the reasons we're launching the fund in in march is we think we could get a technical rally to the end of the year and, and maybe some softness after that. So that's what we're positioned for, but we're, we're pretty flexible. Yeah, it's interesting, especially when we're talking about the, the tech stocks. So they've been smashed. They're just down horrendously. And after the GFC, that was kind of the darling that brought us out of that. And to see that actually happen again and take us out, I'm, I'm in your camp. I, don't, I really don't see that happening. I think so many people keep fighting a last war. Yeah. It happens all the time. Um, and even now they'll look back to, well, look what happened to the oil price uh, post GFC, you know, if you had a runoff. Now, leading to that, you had so much CapEx come on board because China was coming on board. The CapEx spend on oil has been incredibly low the last 10 years, become almost illegal for banks to fund these projects. Um, you know, we've got uh, SPR, which can't be released forever. We've got China in lockdown, can't happen forever. And, you know, so many people have believed we just don't need oil anymore. Um even though it continues to grow uh, year over year in, in terms of demand. So, um, yeah, I think that uh, to take a broader view and not just to look at the the last four, and it, even like we said earlier on around inflation, you know, going back to the 1970s, that was a very different inflation. You know, you had women entering the workforce, you had young demographics. Um, yeah, that was built 
uh, you know, there was obviously the oil shock, but it was largely built around demand growing really strongly. This is different to that. Um, so I think it pays to be able to have a, a broader view when need be. I want to take a bit of a shift now and talk crypto. Oh, we're getting, <coughs> into, the, we're getting into the spice. We're getting into the spice. So, uh, so Juddy, you're a, you're a collective shift member? Yes, I'm a collective shift member. Here we go. So you would have seen the news. So yeah. so Ben, mate, take away with the spice. So I think let's. Um, I think it's important to take a step back because talking about like bear markets, the macro, it is hugely affected crypto, right? And, and, and this year we've seen so much um, crisis within the sector. You know, we had, first of all, we had um, Celsius, well, we had three arrows capital that blew up. Which then led into Celsius. We had BlockFi, and now you know in the last 24, 48 hours, we've got you know FTX that's uh, on the verge of bankruptcy. Uh, I, Chris, I want to get your opinion on like you know we can go deep into the FTX news, but just more broadly, like as a as an investor in the macro and equities, and you know you've got your foot in in crypto um, as well. How do you see what's going on in crypto, and how that affects the ability for crypto to ever be like? you know, useful or, or, you know, investable for everyday people with all the crap that's going on in this space. Like this year has been phenomenal. It's just been wild. <laughs> I mean, we're saying to you on air too, of all the toilets have been uncovered in the crypto rorting. I think SBF has to take the cake. Just yeah, absolutely. Wild. Like the effective altruism is just, you know, please. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that, like, I mean, I know I touched him off air, but like he was the Ken Griffin of crypto anyway. He was front running all... Um, you know, legally rorting all holders in a best case scenario. And now it appears he was doing much worse than that. So, um, look, I mean, it, no one in the, no one wants to be regulated full stop. Why would you? But there's a reason why banks are regulated because when they're not, they steal from people and, um, people in crypto are people and, you know, there's, there's a mix of people and, and plenty of them will rip people off when they get a chance. Or they get desperate and feel like they've got no choice. So um, the centralized exchanges in crypto are screaming out for regulation and need to be regulated as banks because that's what they are. Um, They're holding deposits. That's right. And we've seen they can't be trusted without it. So, I mean, that's bleeding the obvious. Um, You know, I'm sympathetic to the view that DeFi hasn't broken and... Um, that never really comes across in uh, in broad media when when you hear about what's going on in crypto. Uh, I'm also sympathetic to the view is this is how TradFi would have looked in the GFC if Bernanke didn't bail out his banking buddies. Um, and 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 we know that's when crypto was born out of. So um, there would be plenty more busts in the real world if. Um, wasn't for the bailouts. It wasn't for the bailouts. And they still continue today. You know, yeah. we know of home builders in Australia that were going out of business, but they employ too many people, so they get bailed out. Um, and, and these things do become reflexive when they start. Just the reflex in the real world gets avoided because uh, those losses get taken on by by centralised authorities. And um, I'm not sure whether that's a good thing or a bad thing. You know, certainly when you, you look at a lot of the things that are happening now, it's hard to say what would be worse to cop the big blood nose early or to, to live in a world like in Australia where young people just can't afford to buy a house and, and can't afford to get ahead, uh, you know, unless they've got rich parents or, or play footy, you know? Um, so, um, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. Um, 
I do find a lot of the crypto uh, preaching nauseating and it seems the people that preach the most are the biggest crooks. Um, and it's going to take a long while. You can see what's going to take a long while for institutions to get comfortable with it because it's just such big risk, not just financially, it's the flow on contagion risk of being a, you know, a super fund that's being invested in FTT and now even if the loss was immaterial, your members are going to go, can I trust? Um, Could you imagine the fallout from that? Like just everyday people like, you know, nurses, teachers, whatever, and they're super fund, even though it'd be a small allocation. That's to right. To then have that, have that news and how just absolutely crazy this news is to the average person that just doesn't understand crypto, but they've got, they've clicked like the high risk category on their super and they've got that allocation. They've seen it gone down by a little percent. They're like, oh my God. FTT and uh, Luna and UST, three projects in the top 10 crypto assets that are about, they're going to go to zero. Yeah. That's insane. And that's the opportunity too, isn't it? Yeah. You know, like by the time everyone says, I, I don't think it's going to die. I think it'll change. But if it's not going to die, there's going to come a point where it, there's an opportunity there. Um, what I don't like about this space, what I hate, is the egos of crypto founders. Like if you look back at Do Kwon, the founder of Luna, and you look back at any of his clips, he was literally calling for people on Twitter to come and you know come and shut us down. Like I'm the best, we're the best project. Come and kill me, gone. And you know SBF. The, I think for him, the ego around Alameda Research, his holding company, which seems to have, would have gone bust with the 3AC event, bailed himself out with FTX client funds to prop it up and didn't tell anyone. And if you look back on Twitter, it was like covering it up. And now that's going tits up as well because you can't take the L. And now look what happens. You, you've lost 10 to $15 billion worth of client funds. There's an $8 billion hole in your balance sheet. You've lost $2 billion worth of outside capital invested. And now... You're fucked again. Like Yeah. I I look at this and it's we talk about Bitcoiners and it's like the Trinity of Freedom, Autism, Hoodie. Like that's like the quintessential Bitcoiner, right? And you look at these guys and they're in their twenties, early thirties, they're obviously a bit out there because they're in crypto, they're trying to create companies, all of a sudden they become billionaires and they just become more nuclear, like in those like crazy parts of their personalities. And didn't you even say like Do Kwon was on talking recently? He's on like Kobe's he was on the show, wasn't he? Yeah, he's on Kobe. Oh my god! <laughs> the guy that's lost sixty billion is commenting on the guy that's just lost fourteen billion. It's only in crypto. But I was, yeah, you know what put me off it? I went to Permissionless. Yep. With my analyst, yep. we wanted to to learn. We went there. It was a good conference. But I'll take a step back. So I was when I was twenty four, I I just captain or twenty three. I just captained a uh, a premiership. I'd won a Brownload, won a Norm Smith, won a couple of BNFs, and you know, I thought my shit didn't stink. Right? Top of the world, mate. Yeah, top of the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I remember doing an interview, like a Q&A for Medibank Private. Fuck, people would have been riveted with what I'd say. <laughs> They're like, what were we going to work on? It was like, I was going to work on flossing my teeth. This I take not. Flossing my teeth and drinking more water. It was like, anyway, fast forward 12 months and my, my groins, I got a... Uh, issues with my adductor that were so bad that they'd pulled some of the pelvic bone off. They'd gotten so dysfunctional. And I sort of met with a biomechanist and gradually learned that I wasn't running correctly at all, not walking correctly. I couldn't even sit in a chair properly. And it was only eight months earlier. I was going so well. The only things I could work on were like dental hygiene and, <laughs> and a bit more water. And I, I went to permissionless and I listened to everyone up on stage and there's some good presenters. And you were there, weren't you? Ben? Yeah, yeah. Some good presenters, but 
it reminded me of me at 23. You know, like they'd, <laughs> they'd, they'd had a good yeah, run. They've made right. some good money. I mean, yeah. the crypto guys made wildly more money than I had. But there's just a bit of bullshit around said, yeah. about how they were going to, you know, they were going to take down the bond market. Like you know, oh. Bitcoin was taking on gold. But ETH, we're going to take down the bond market. I mean, for starters, the bond market exists so governments can fund what they need to fund. Like, they're just different things. Just because something's got a yield, it doesn't mean it's a replacement for the bond market. Um, and it just sort of reeked of young kids that have had success, be told how fantastic you are and been in a bit of an echo chamber. And it just, it actually put me off a bit the space and thought equities was was a better fit. Um, it doesn't mean that there's no future or it's all doom and gloom or it's terrible, but it just maybe means... Just things maybe got ahead of themselves, and oh, it's definitely very immature. Yeah, and you just see these people, and I'm like, how are you going to do that? Like, do you understand how the real world works? How yeah. there's regulation, how much time things take. They're like, no, but it's just more efficient. We'll just trade shares like this. You don't have to do T plus two anymore. You're like, well, there's a reason. Can you imagine the infrastructure that you have to do? Plus, you want to run it on a blockchain, and you want to do like, no, yeah. you don't need all of that stuff. Yeah, that echo chamber rings a bell. Like we live in an echo chamber in crypto. We think the world revolves revolves around us. We think the halving is everything. We think NFTs are the, you know, everything. And 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 I fundamentally believe it's going to change the world. But most people don't give a shit about what we're talking about and what's going on in this space. You know, it's just a, it's a, it's an ego thing. Everyone's trying to build the biggest company, raise the most money, build the best walls first, whatever. And you're not seeing a heap of things that are impacting, you know, I'd say as a non-crypto native, I'm not seeing a lot of crypto things that are impacting my day-to-day lives. Exactly. Venezuela, yep, stable coins, get it. You know, I can see a world, let's say if you had yield curve control, which is to me is a possibility down the track. It, what would come with that would be capital con- controls, you would imagine. You know, that's what happened post-World War II when you had yield curve control. In that sort of world, could I see a need for Monero and um, Zcash? Sure, you know, potentially. Um, so I could see some functional reason why you would need those products. But at this stage, the rest of them are still a work in progress. I'm not a video gamer, but... The video games aren't up to, in terms of fun, they're not there yet. And and nor should they be. If it takes five to 10 years to build a, a good game and they started in 17 and they're underfunded at the time, you know, realistically, it's probably 2025, 2026. Yeah, exactly. Where's the first chance you're going to see a blockchain video game that's actually really fun to play? Yeah. But we wait and see. We, we've still got to see it. But until those products come, uh, it's a leap of faith. But there are a heap of smart people in the industry. They're well capitalized now. They're working hard. It's hard to back against those dynamics on a long enough time frame. Yeah. But you just need to get your time frame right, I think. Exactly. Yeah. Short term is not much chop. Like a lot of people are in there. They're raising a lot of capital. Um, a lot of the stuff I've seen being built is not that great. And even for the the time that we are, but you're right. If you maintain that capital, you you know you actually have working capital. You don't keep it in bloody uh, ETH. We saw this like quite a lot, especially around like 2017. So someone will have an ICO, they'll raise all this money, they'll have it in ETH. Oh great, let's go on about our days. You know, a couple of months later, it goes down by 80. <laughs> yeah. percent like, I've got no working capital. I can't pay my people. Yeah. If they're if they're good at just fundamentally running businesses. And you have a long enough time frame and give you that, you know, five-year buffer to actually build something great. That's where we're going to see the really good products that people will actually use and not even know they're using crypto or a blockchain. Yeah. I mean, I think it gets compared to the internet a lot. You know, we've all seen that graph of um, user adoption of the internet and then user adoption of crypto and we're 1997 or whatever. Great, great. Dial-up days. (laughs) But, you know, you think of the early internet, like email was a product people were using. 
even then, even when it was, there were still some products early doors. You could say, well, this helps my life. Yeah. Um, even before you had the slick, you know, uh, you know, Facebook and YouTube and, and whatever. So, um, I guess that's sort of what I'm on the lookout for. I'll be interested to see what comes. In the best use case I've seen more recently is the Starbucks and Reddit. Uh, so Starbucks have a new loyalty program uh, and Reddit has the new avatars and characters. And they're both actually NFTs, but do not mention NFTs yeah. at all. So it's back to this idea of like, you know, we don't talk about www. We talk about Facebook, we talk about Amazon, we talk about the products and experiences that they we have, not the technology behind it. And I think that's going to be the game changer for us to build actual products that people actually want to use and need to use. No one gives a shit about what's the technology behind it. Yeah. These things that only blockchain can enable. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the other one was, oh, I'm mind blanking. Um, oh, the metaverse, Chris. So I just got back from Dubai, I spent six weeks in Dubai. And uh, first of all, Dubai is crazy, um, but uh, they are going all in on the metaverse. So they're building. Uh, not necessarily the hardware, but the the software, the the digital metaverse. They're trying to replicate what Dubai is in the real world as a as a real world business hub in the metaverse. So you can uh, you can buy a storefront, you can be registered in there, you can get your visas, you can like build storefront, you can do all these things in the metaverse. Uh, you, you throw on your goggles and you walk around and interact. Fascinating to know. Have you have you done VR? Have you done any metaverse stuff? Any thoughts? Yeah, so really interested in it. Uh, not a gamer by background, but I've, I've seen the VR headsets and put them on. Um, thought a lot about the metaverse. I and mean, I think we're already in it. You know, I think Twitter or Instagram is the metaverse already. Yeah. Iteration one. You know, I know of people who will buy a Louis Vuitton bag so they can show it on their Instagram page and not because they necessarily want it in the real world. And I know a lot of people who just cultivate a life online very different to their actual life Digital and, and in a lot of ways it's more important to them so i think in some sense it's already here um i'm sympathetic to the view that the metaverse is what's the plural for a metaverse metaverse art they're dictatorships you know i, yeah. I, I like yeah. the web 3 analogy where yeah. you know the the digital warlords own everything including your username they don't share any of the revenue with their users uh it would be nice if Web3 could change that. I think the piece that Web3 has probably missed up to this stage whilst they've got the in, in incentive structure right in terms of tokens, uh, they've got no AI capability and that's the Web2 component that's just so strong that people probably don't realise and that's going to take a long life, long way for them to catch up to Web2, let alone supersede Web2. Uh, and we wait to see if they can do that. Um, but yeah, look, I think you know, the digital lives of people is becoming more and more important. And I think it'll probably continue. I, th I think it is a one-way trend. It doesn't mean that Meta is a good investment or whatever. Um, yeah, but I, I think, you know, I see my daughter on Roblox every night for half an hour and she's screaming at her friends and um, they're going on, you know, digital adventures. Um, and I suspect that's going to it's gonna be a long-term secular trend. Yeah, definitely. Digital is becoming more. And and you're right. We are in the metaverse already. Like this is an extension of your brain. You're on this Completely. thing all the time. Completely. Yep. You're on you're on different apps. And then all that's going to happen is that is going to change to something else. It'll be VR. It'll be Neuralink straight into your head. It'll be something else. The phone will just disappear and you're just beamed into your head. Like 
we love digital stuff. We love going hype. We love efficiency. We love connecting with people. And these are all things that digital technologies enable. Yeah, it's not slowing down anytime soon. In the augmented reality, I'm, I'm looking forward to, like when you're mixing the virtual and the real world, uh, you know, maybe you can walk down the street and you can see a store that's not actually there in the real world, but it's virtual and you can try things on and actually buy the Louis Vuitton bag, right? And then maybe it gets delivered to you or whatever. I think that'd be cool. Yeah, even even if you have screens anymore for your computer or if yeah. you just have your glasses on and you have six Through screens, this. yeah, you know, yeah. I, I, I can see that world coming. Yeah. Um, I would prefer it wasn't, but it is. No one cares. No one cares what I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I think it's going to come whether we like it or not. And, you know, AI, robotics, all those things. It doesn't mean that's where I want to invest in the near term, but I, I think as a secular trend, it's coming regardless. Even though I went to a, a mining company and we were looking at some of their technology and they had augmented reality where they've got their entire plant just on the table and you can zoom right in, the engineers can come in and they can just even look behind walls and see all the cabling. They can get trained up before they actually go to site, which is somewhere off the coast in WA. It takes them forever to get there and they're already skilled up and then they just do it for real. Yeah. It's incredible tech. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, you know when you do those things to log into a site and you've got to click on the stop sign or click on the bike or whatever and then that's training autonomous vehicles yeah the capture land. Yeah. i mean that's oh. you could see a world where people are playing video games um let's say playing a video game mining digging something out of the ground yeah. and that is actually digging out copper in east africa you know I, I know it's not around the corner but one day i could see this sort of blending between the digital world and real world activities yeah. being done by robotics where they're I mean, that's what we saw with a lot of, you know, Defy Kingdoms. I mean, that's yeah. just a, yeah. you know, automated market making. You're, you're yeah. doing sort of activities that hedge funds would do. It's just yeah. we've got a game sleeve, yeah. uh, game yeah. skin over the top of it. Yeah, it's yeah. sort of the first iteration of that. You could see that becoming more sophisticated. And I could see a world where people think they're playing a video game, but they're really doing back office function for a bank or, or something oh. like that down the track. Yeah, this is like, there was a meme where it's like they ban children from, you know, going into the coal mines in like, the early 1900s and now all the kids are playing minecraft it's like the children yearn for the mines it was just, <laughs> it was so and you're right as well like that's one of my favorite things so you know the captures where you click the stop signs so tesla had a huge problem where they're training their autonomous vehicles right okay you got all these stop signs but they don't all look the same what if you've got a tree over it? you've got occlusion or it's an old stop sign and it's round how do you get that data so they use their own cars to capture that so you get really noisy data like maybe one out of 10 pictures is actually a stop sign and then you give it to humans to actually train it and click on the stop signs yeah. how crazy is that yeah. and then the algorithm gets better and your car drives better yeah i mean that's when i think blockchain gaming works either when it's providing a real world value and utility potentially without the gamer realizing it uh and then you can get paid for that and it makes sense or when the game's just so much fun and you're prepared to spend money flexing you know, which you would be if you were playing Fortnite or a game like that currently. Until those two, th one of those two things occurs, I don't, I don't know that blockchain gaming would be sustainable. But in, in a crypto sense, that's probably the area I'm most interested in. I think eventually there will be a blockchain game. Well, I think there'll eventually be a video game that's, you know, got a GDP comparable to a small country. or It's just going to be enormous. Whether or not that's on the blockchain or not, um, we'll wait and see. But I'm, I'm sort of... I feel like I'm keeping my eye out for that because yeah. I don't want to miss it. Yeah. Um, and you're not going to have to be that early either. I think it'll be so big, you're not going to have to be a seed investor in it. But yeah. I, I sort of, I just want to keep an eye on that space because eventually I just think there's going to be something massive in that space. 
shameless plug, I think that's what we're really trying to do a collective shift, you know, is help busy people stay ahead of the trends and see what's going on in the investment space. Chris, we've got now two famous AFL players, you and um, Suli uh, as, as members. Yeah. Right, man, Suli. <laughs> you and Suli. Um, a very shameless plug, but how do you use collective, just more of a, you know, personal question, how do you use collective shift as, you know, you're using it to, to more on the investment side, education side, staying up with what's going on? Really just to not miss something major. So, I mean, I spend, in terms of priorities in my reading, I read uh, macroeconomic stuff, macroeconomic newsletters and, and information is sort of the most important thing for me. Then it's um, bottom-up equities. And then it's things like uh, like collective shift or sort of alternative asset info so that I don't miss something big in a different asset class that, that's going to impact what I'm doing on a day-to-day basis. That's what we're trying to do. Absolutely, man. <laughs> cool. Do you have anything else you want to add? Oh, yeah. I want to go personal, personal growth question. <laughs> no, let's go, let's go. You're not getting off the hook, lad. My, my crypto's done, done <laughs> So we had a, a question from uh, Matt, our head researcher, and he said he watched an interview of yours uh, a while ago and you're saying in your early career when you're at the Eagles you were training really really hard um, and it caused a lot of stress on your body as well but it also made you an elite player and I wondered if you've even looked if you've looked back on that and thought about it like was that the right thing to do the cost was too high would you have done it differently now that you're older and a bit wiser do you ever look back on those times I've thought about it a bit Um, I guess essentially I worked out early on that people are largely predictable. They'll, they'll generally respond in a pretty predictable manner, uh, certainly on on average. Um, and so, you know, what that looks like in football is, you know, they don't want to train on Christmas Day. Uh, they don't train if they're hungover. If they've had a big training week and there's a rest day on Saturday, they'll generally take it. Uh, X, Y, Z. They're basically, people want to be comfortable. By default, and, and even athletes at a different level to a sedentary adult, but still. Uh, and so I felt it was predictable to uh, work out how other players would react. And uh, I basically worked out if I could do things that other players wouldn't want to do, and those things were efficacious for performance, I'd improve at a quicker rate. And I really just scaled up that idea and just trained like a crazy man. <laughs> and, and, it, and it worked. You know, it worked until it didn't. Yeah. You know, so. It didn't work. I eventually broke down early on. It was about 23, uh, you know, post the flossing. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but I don't know if I'd change it. You know, my objective in footy wasn't to just try and have the longest career possible and try and milk playing footy till I was 35 or 36. It was to have uh, be part of premiership success. And, and we were lucky enough to do that at West Coast. Um, so if I had my time over, I would have been more sophisticated about it. You know, the other component to that as an athlete is it's not just doing more of what's better, it's doing it more effectively. Yeah. And that was yeah. a component I missed. But I was, you know, a, a, a bloke from the age of 18 to 24 is one of the most stupid animals on earth. He's, um, <laughs> he's, just, he's just coming out of it. Um, and so I was, well and truly in, I was well and truly in that, that phase of life. Um, so I wouldn't change it, but it, it was an error. Yeah. Put it that way. All right. Do you still find that in your life now you're i assume you're a competitive guy and do you kind of look at if you want to be successful in an area what are other people doing and what do i need to do completely to yeah. yeah completely so that's why i don't want to invest how the funds invest because yeah. 
they've got a whole heap of rules that become jails after become a jail Prison, after yeah. a while. Yeah. Um, and it's easy to predict what those rules are. So um, I've been a beneficiary of that as a private investor. I think I can do that as a small investor managing other people's money. Um, just so long as I don't take on you know super fun money or other money that's got sort of ideolo- ideological uh, views attached to the investment. Yeah, fantastic. Absolutely. Do you? Uh, all right, we've got Ben over here. He's twenty four years old, right? Look at him. Oof, what a rough head. <laughs> Still got a good head of hair. Enjoy. Yeah. Enjoy. 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 Is there any any advice you think you could give to to Ben or any things to kind of look out for as a guy who's also ultra competitive? Like, geez, we went bowling yesterday, mate, and we're just having like a leisurely game. And he's like Michael Jordan, like you know, you watch that documentary, and he's like, everything's a competition, absolutely every single thing. Uh, is there any advice you could think of that you would you would give to to Ben because he goes pretty hard all the time? That's all right, he's young. Not on the track. Not we, we discussed this pre-show, not on the grass. Now, people ask me what advice would I give to my 21-year-old self, like semi-regularly, and I think nothing because the 21-year-old self wouldn't have listened to it anyway. Yeah, so that's it. Why would I bothered? But um, no, my main – I did great 20s, so much fun. My main thing would have been to just enjoy the wins. That's probably what I didn't do. When you are really competitive and really focused, it's so easy to just get into the trap of what's coming next. And that's – you need that, but just to balance it up with enjoying the wins when they when they come, that'd be my my parting message. But I do steer clear of too much life advice. Yeah, that's you're horrible at that. Yeah. I'm, I'm, <laughs> it's always the next thing. I'm that's horrible right. at that as well. Yeah. We're just like, well, great, what's the next thing? Yeah, and you just keep going. You raise capital, you launch a product, you that customer, it's just like next, next, yeah. next, next. Even yeah. the team I was in before with uh, when I was working out in health, they were just all like type A people, just going for it constantly. And you, go, you did the thing, great. What's the next thing? Straight away, never kick back and celebrate. You're still rubbish at it, mate. (laughs) (laughs) I can't help you with it. I'm rubbish too. (laughs) Both are. Cool. Um, Chris, where can our listeners find you? Maybe some of the um, media stuff you've got going on and even your fund. I'm not sure if you've got a... No, it's a bit early for fun. But Chris Judd Invest, you can find uh, any of the media content I produce. So that'll be... That's on YouTube at Chris Judd Invest. Um, Or it's also being played on Ticker News, uh, which is a news platform nightly at at 6.30pm. So people can check it out there. Awesome. Cool. Anything from you? No. Oh, that was fantastic. Thanks so much. much. Yeah, that was brilliant. Thanks, guys. That was great. See you soon.